to read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And all hail our sponsor, ProWritingAid, the official editing software of the Bestseller Experiment. ProWritingAid is so much more than some mere grammar checker. It's a style editor, writing mentor, all in one package. And what's more... It works with Scrivener. It works with Word. It works with Google Docs, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, OpenOffice, and Outlook. And it's designed for the smarter writer, which is all of you. And as a listener of the Best Sell Experiment, you, yes, you, listening now, can get a whopping 20% off right now, this second. Pop over to prowritingaid.com forward slash bestseller. That is prowritingaid.com forward slash bestseller to receive your chunky discount. Mr. D, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. And I'm actually really looking forward, really looking forward to interviewing uh, the CEO of ProWriting Aid. We're going to have Chris Ooh. coming on from uh, ProWriting Aid. He's going to talk a lot about all these tools that we can use to aid us in our writing. That's going to come up in November. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I am doing really well, although uh, it's this time of year. It's, it's getting out of bed. A bit of a struggle. You know how it is. <laughs> Clock changes. Do you know, here's something really interesting. We change our clocks a week after everyone in the uk so in canada we change our clocks next week right and the problem with that is that if you've got any dealings with anyone other than north america <laughs> every, your entire diary goes up the swanee <laughs> everyone's turning up an hour late or an hour earlier yeah i i bought i bought an app called time buddy which is really good for that. It's really, really good. It, it does all the it does all the time. So you can look weeks ahead, and it knows when the clocks change and all that kind of stuff. Say, oh. Absolute lifesaver if you do lots of international interviews, like a jet setting podcast, like my good self. <clears throat> yeah, not so much the jet setting though. It's more the uh, in the room turning on the mic, isn't it? Really? No, actually, no. To be fair though, you've you've actually travelled quite a few miles doing this. You travelled in the back of a cab with a couple of big interviews, yeah, Michael, like back, back, Mike Conley. Michael Conley. Yeah, yeah, I've been. You've you know, gone to I've conferences, conferences, you've been to bookstores. Yeah, yeah, been all over, uh, all over London. Back. <laughs> exactly, it's brilliant. It's further than I've been. Well, I have been invited to go and speak at a writing group. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's quite a ways away. <laughs> so it's one of those one of those things you have to kind of like, oh, can't really leave the kids. But anyway, it's one of those things. How are you keeping, Mister Stay? I'm very good. I'm deep in rewrite territory. Um, it's, it's an interesting one because I, I, the first Woodville book I did as a novella, okay, 45,000 words. I sent it to my agent. I got, you know, got beta read up the wazoo, lots of really good feedback. And I sent it to my agent and he said, look, if we send this out as a novella, publishers will just shrug and go, it's a novella. And he said, it's too, too good for that. He said, you need to get up to about 70,000 words, which is easier said than done. So I'm doing this thing where I'm, because I think that the quick fix is, oh, add another subplot or something like that. Or, but it just feel tacked on, you know? So I've been yeah. going through and I'm digging deeper. Every single chapter, I'm digging deeper. And it's amazing how, having been away from it for a while, coming back to it and scratching away and going, actually, there is stuff here. 
but it's it's a it's it's a slog. It's hard. I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. But it is it's one of the hardest things I've ever done because you don't want to um you don't want to break what you've already done. Uh, but by digging deeper, I'm finding that it is slowly getting better and better. But it's um yeah, it's hard work, mate. Whew. Wow. I'll tell you what isn't hard work though. This um this new thing I'm doing, which is this this idea to write every day um mm. i've been doing this now for about three months and i cannot believe I've, I've actually written more in the last couple of months than i've written probably in the last year and a half mm. and what i've done is uh i've i've put together or well, we've put together an experiment i was going to kind of a let our listeners know about this we've got a writing experiment going on in the background it's been going on now um for a little while and we're going to bring the results of these uh of this writing experiment with a, a number of our listeners to you very soon but all i'm going to say is 2020 mr stay is going to be everyone's best ever year for writing if they continue listening to this podcast because we're going to make some massive announcements and i for one i'm very excited i'm a bit kind of desperate to tell everyone but we have the whole book (laughs) and this is um uh, because i'm not really that involved this is your baby isn't it i'm kind of hearing about this and it's fast it is fascinating and it is from what you're telling me it's getting some seriously good results so yes i think absolutely right 2020 is going to be a big gear for everyone yes and we're, we're we're officially declaring today and we'll be talking about this over the next couple of months that 2020 will be your best ever year for writing it's going to be the year of taking action so if you want to make 2020 your writing year you must must well i really think people should get over to our website and sign up to our mailing list because that's where we're going to announce it first so pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com and look for the mailing list newsletter link and uh, put your email in because you'll get to find out about it first we're going to pre-announce some stuff before we announce it on the show so get over there right now and you will not want to miss this and if you want an incentive to sign up to the mailing list keep listening right to the end of the show because we're doing a little giveaway which uh fans of our guest author today will find rather exciting now talking about 2020 being a great year for people i can tell you two people in particular i already know it's going to be a fantastic year and these two people our supporters of the podcast, uh, they're members of our BXP team. Uh, two of our listeners, it's just, it just blows me away, have just signed the most amazing deals. I mean, again, it seems like a week doesn't go by where two of our listeners don't get amazing. So first of all, we got we got a wonderful message um, from Liz Hurley, who has been on the show uh, on one of our deep dives. Uh, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And um, the, the announcement came just a few days ago. Uh, Hera signs two women's fiction novels from debut author Liz Hurley. And hey, hey. Big announcement. Delighted. Now it's two feel-good, heartwarming novels from women's fiction author Liz Hurley. The Wiverton sisters will follow the lives of Ari, Paddy, Nicoletta, Asta and Clem, orphaned at a young age whose lives are changed forever when they discover that Ari has inherited a sprawling country estate in Norfolk and the title of Countess Wiverton. The first book will be published by Hera in early 2020, second book following later that year. World rights wow. will agree directly with the author. And uh, Kashini, who came on the podcast, another deep dive uh, guest, um, she said, reading Liz's book is an absolute tonic. I fell in love with Ari and all of the sisters as soon as I met them. So this is amazing and we had a message this is huge this is we had a message from from liz and she said i listened to your interview kylie dunbar and thought here sounded like a good fit for me sent off my manuscript uh kashini gets in touch she's finally read it yes and bada boom bada bing <laughs> so <laughs> ah this is great the bxp this is great. <laughs> the bxp midas touch well 
Again, in action. Part one. And here comes part, part two. Abigail Mann. Now, I was lucky enough to bump into Abigail at the London Book Fair earlier this year. And I knew then she was going places. She was really enthusiastic, really. And she said, hi, BXPers. She put this up on our um, on the BXP group on Facebook. I've got some news. I've got a two-book deal with one more chapter, which is part of Avon, which is part of HarperCollins. Uh, for oh, my a gosh. Book, a book called The Lonely Fajita, Summer 2020 Publishing Day and one more as yet unnamed title I've been sitting on it for a little while now but it's been announced on the Comedy Women in Print website so I imagine it'll be on social media soon I'm absolutely over the moon and can't thank all of you enough for the help and support you provided when I was freaking out about agents and being on submission you lot really are the best so yeah now the Comedy Women in Print website I put a link on uh, our Facebook group about this but I'm hoping to get a former winner and someone who helps run that on the podcast very soon because obviously it's having a big effect on Abigail's career and it's launching all sorts of other careers as well but I love it two of our supporters Abigail Liz huge congrats to both of you it's massive just congratulations massive congratulations Abigail on this we are so delighted and I, honestly, Mark, I mean, we, we talk about this again and again, but there's definitely something about the people that we're seeing in the BXP team. They are the most uh, engaged, I think, of people we've really ever met writing wise. And and it, it goes to show, I think, if you if you really if you really dig deep, if you've got that community around you, and especially being, you know, for many authors prior to signing any deal, it's very lonely. There's no one there to support you. Mm. Uh, you know, you might not even have an editor at that point, but what we've seen on the BXP team is this, this incredible group, such, such supportive group. And I was going to say, really, when you see every every success that people are having, it's, it is no coincidence that they're doing it with the support of a, a really amazing and inspiring group. And I think that's key for me when I'm on that group I feel I whenever I go into it I feel so inspired just by all the encouragement the advice people give how supportive and how funny (laughs) people are brilliant there's a lot of comedy going on in there as well and it's just a very different writing group that I've I have never been a part of a group like this before. I've been a part of writing groups, which are the, you know, you show up in a room and you, you critique each other's, you know, words that you've written that week. I've been a part of some of the m- massive writing groups on Facebook, you know, with 20,000 people. But this, the BXP team is is actually something quite special. It, it almost feels like it's becoming one of those uh, magical groups, you know, almost in the uh, in the vein of, of the, what they call the inklings, was it? Yes, this is, the, this is the new Inklings. <laughs> what was that? C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien, and some other bloke. Anyway, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you if you want to get involved, folks, the best way to support us at the moment, the best way to become part of this group is to is to come over to Patreon. Uh, there's three tiers. If you want to support the podcast, you can be a pensmith, two dollars a month. For five dollars, you can be a bestseller to be. That gets you access to all the deep dives, all those great deep dive episodes. For ten dollars, you're a chart topper. That gets you the deep dives, but gets you access to this BXP group and this is where it's happening so you get the episodes early as well get bonus episodes you get um, you can submit to the one page punch ups come to the live shows uh, it's just amazing so uh, come to bestsellexperiment.com forward slash support many thanks to our new su- supporters Laurel, Brian and Kate Baker thank you so much for your support we again we could not do this show without you wonderful wonderful people and if you'd like to join us on our next live show that's coming up we're actually going to be recording that on thursday the 7th at 11 a.m pst 7 p.m 
GMT or BST, I think you call it. And uh, if you'd like to do that, you do need to get over and sign up to the BXP team uh, in the next few days from when this podcast goes live, because I think that live show will be coming up very quickly and that live show will be going out in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Now, Mark, for fans of uh, big selling authors, our next author uh, that we're, we're going to be listening to today, amazing interview from yourself. I've, I've worked out as actually crept into the top 20 authors uh, on on the bestseller experiment most most sales crept in a mere five million sales <laughs> brilliant well I tell had, us about today's amazing interviewee garth nix i had the very great pleasure of speaking to garth nix at Galantzfest a couple of weekends ago and what's wonderful is it's on exactly the same spot where i interviewed Joanne Harris, one of our first ever interviews three years ago. So it's like the circle is now complete, which is why you'll hear people walking past and photocopiers going off in the background. It was the only quiet spot in all of foils in Charing Cross Road. Uh, but Garth is a global best-selling author, over 5 million copies sold. He's probably best known for the Old Kingdom series, which started with uh, Sabriel. Uh, he was in the middle of a massive tour for his new book, Angel Mage. And few authors get tours like this. He's covered the USA, the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, he's amazing. As you'll hear, he's been a bookseller. He's worked in publishing and sales and marketing. He's been an agent. He's even been uh, been in the army, you know, but he's he's done absolutely everything. So, um, and it was a real, real privilege to speak to him because he's he is a, a mine of wisdom, as you will hear. Brilliant. Let's listen to Mark speaking with Garth Nix. Garth Nix, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very good. Thank you, Mark. You've been on the go now for a about a month and there's more to come, isn't there? You're touring the world and more. Well, I've just been two weeks in the US and about eight or nine days in the UK. And I go home in a few days and I have a little bit of a rest. And then I start again in Australia, but only four or five days. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be on tour. Excellent. I'm grateful the publishers support the book in that way. It's some... Um, is that when you've arrived, when you get a tour? Do you think that's a sign that the publisher has faith in you? I think it varies enormously. It may be a sign that the publisher has a vain hope of, you know, this investment will pay off. Um, I guess it depends when you started as well. Early on, when my first book was published in the US, which was in 1996, uh, they toured me then, you know, right at the beginning, and it was more routine, I think, to to do so. So I think it, it can mean a it can mean a variety of things, but um, it's certainly uh, you know welcome support from the various publishers. Yeah, of all the authors we've had on the podcast, I think you are by far the most qualified we've had because you've done everything. You've been a bookseller, you've worked for a publisher, you've been a sales rep, you've been an agent, you've done the whole shebang haven't you I, i've had a, a parallel career in publishing across many many different many different jobs which which you know i loved and i i actually loved the book business as well as writing and uh from very early on and i wanted to be a writer but i also wanted to work in books and uh, i combined both for a long time and but ultimately uh, i guess i had to concentrate on the writing because uh, i was unable to continue to do 
you know, to maintain the, the two career paths, as it were, just just from a time perspective as much as anything. Well, let, let's rewind because um, we had Matthew Riley on a year or so ago. And, of course, Matthew's famous for essentially selling books out the back of his car. The Australian market is very different to the UK and, and, and uh, American markets. When you were writing, what were your hopes and aspirations? Did you, did you ever dream of going on tour and being published by a major, major publisher? I never dreamed of going on tour, to be honest. I know Matthew Riley's publisher, Kate Patterson, very well. She's a good friend of mine. She's the one who found his first book uh, on the shelves in Dimmicks and, and then bought it for Pam McMillan. Um, so I, I know that, 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 that story very well and, and, uh, and his continued success. Um, I certainly wanted to be published by a publisher whose name I knew. I mean, I, I was... I, I guess from very early on, uh, and then as a bookseller, of course, I was very familiar with, with all the famous names, all the famous publisher names, and I wanted my books to be published in the United States and the United Kingdom as well as Australia, because in terms of of English English speaking countries, you know, publishing in English. I mean, the US is by far the biggest market, uh, therefore, for economic reasons, it's very important to be published there. But the United Kingdom is, you know, is the home of English literature and of publishing in English. This is where it all started. So it was important for me to be published here as well and to be published in my, in my home country too, because I'm Australian and, and uh, wanted my books to be there too. So I did, I did want all of those things. I'm not sure I had any conception of you know, what would happen then as, as, you know, beyond just the books being published, particularly when I first started. I mean, I think I had very bold dreams that they would immediately become successful, which they were not, I should point out. Mm-hmm. Um, my first book, The Ragwitch, was published in 1991 in Australia. It wasn't picked up by overseas publishers immediately. Um, in fact, not until after Sabriel. Uh, then um, after The Rag, which was published, I couldn't get my next book published. It's never been published. So the second book I wrote after, you know, was actually, which was actually my third book. Um, but after my first book was published, The Rag, which 91, I wrote a book called The Clearing House, which included the Regency romance Newt's Emerald. There was a book about a book. Much, much later, Newt's Emerald was published, the book inside that, that <laughs> container. But, uh, no, but the, 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 the wrapping book, the wrapping book with a W, um, <laughs> uh, the container, as it were, has never been published and won't, and won't be. And then, so I could easily have given up. I could have had one book published, didn't do that much. I mean, it was well-reviewed and so forth, but it didn't set the world on fire. Then the next book wasn't published, rejected soundly everywhere. And a friend of mine said to me, well, Garth, I guess you're just a one book wonder. Uh, very good friend. Um, <laughs> still? <laughs> yeah, still. And, uh, and I thought, well, I don't, I don't want to be that. And I was already, I was continuing to write anyway, but I think maybe that goaded me on a little further. And then my next book was Sabriel or Sabriel. You can pronounce it however you like. I always tell people. Um, uh, and that no, that, that was a success, but actually it wasn't an immediate success. It just grew and grew and grew, uh, which was fantastic. But it's an example of the kind of book that, you know, Sabriel has actually sold the most of any of my, my books, you know, more than a million copies around the world just for it. But it's never been on a bestseller list because it did it, it, did it slowly at first, which is the classic measure. I mean, bestseller lists measure sales over time and over concentrated time, which is why they're often they appear in the in the debut week because that's when the, you know, the peak demand. But a book that sells 10,000 copies in its first week 
and maybe say it's number three or four on the list or whatever, on the New York Times list or the Sunday Times list, it might then not sell any copies afterwards. And whereas a copy, whereas a book that sells 500 copies a week every week for the next 10 years won't appear on a bestseller list or, or even a thousand copies a week, it might not. Um, so it's, it, the bestseller lists are not the be all and end all. I mean, particularly some lists are very loosely based on actual data. I mean, here, here in the UK, you have the book scan data and so on. The New York Times list is very famous for being rather woolly in, uh, in, in how it's constructed. I'm, I'm, I've always been very grateful when my books have appeared on it, um, but I'm also aware that there's, it's, there's a certain level of, uh, of willingness about uh, how, how it's actually constructed, which most people don't realise. They think it is based on uh, you know, sales over the counter, uh, whereas it's more of a... Um, more of a, an interesting uh, exercise in polling particular bookshops who may or may not put things down, yes. you know. So, but it's good to be on. Exactly. Yeah. When you were writing, Sabriel, was there a feeling that this was something different? Was it a step up or was did it just feel like the next book to you? It just felt like the next book. They all just feel like the next book. And I guess that's one aspect uh, of, of publishing is that you, you never know. You can't predict um, I sometimes like to describe publishing as being more of a mystery cult than a business um, uh, because no one knows. No one knows what's what's going to happen. I mean, there's certain, obviously, there are certain things that you can uh, base predictions on and in terms of you know, setting print runs and looking at previous books and how they've done, particularly when you have series and so on. But ultimately, there's always something of a gamble, and that is both an, an attraction and, and a, you know, it's a positive and a negative um, because every every new book is another spin of the wheel. And, and, and I was talking to, uh, you know, uh, beginning writers at the Phoenix Arts Club this morning here at Glance Fest. And when I talk to, to writers who are just starting out, I often say, you know, the answer to any problem is write another book. Mm. Whether it's a problem of success or a problem of things not working out, Writing another book gives you another spin of the wheel. It gives you another chance, but you actually have to have something to get another. You have, that's your stake. If you don't finish the book, you can't play. So, but actually, every new thing is another chance. So it can be a short story, it can be you know a play or a screenplay. There's so many different things that let you have another go if you keep doing the work. If you if you do the work, you create the possibility of something happening. It's very true. You do, I've met many writers who have basically been rewriting the same book for 10 years and they just keep spinning on that same wheel. And it's, it's such, I, that's my advice as well. Take a breath, do something different. Absolutely. And I mean, it really worries me. I don't do very many workshops, but occasionally the Australian Society of Authors twists my arm and I do one for them. And sometimes I see the same people with the same manuscript and they're doing minor polishing of it and sending it around as if somehow it's a key that will find a lock it fits and it, and that's all they're focused on. Whereas I, 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 like you, I always recommend to people, sure, send the book out. As soon as the book is out or even before, start writing something else because it also lessens the sting of rejection if your your mind is already in another book so or, or another story or in fact anything, you know, any other creative work, I mean, preferably a book. And quite often first books you know, don't find a publisher or they don't find one very quickly. So it's great to have uh, you know, another book underway. I mean, as I said, it will lessen the sting of rejection. Uh, but also if things work, but they've taken some time, you will have another book written. Mm. And that is a big positive and, and publishers love that. So 
I mean, again, it's that write another book, always keep working yes. uh, because it maximizes the chance of, of success of something happening. Absolutely. I was talking to one uh, guy this morning. He'd written seven books and it's the seventh one that got picked up. And yeah. I thought, yeah, you're doing that right. You are keep, keep moving, keeping it fresh because, you know, you've, you've got to keep moving on, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, having worked in publishing and having seen both sides of things, is that what spurred you on? After your first book didn't catch fire, didn't sell overseas, is that what kept you going? No, it was really just my desire to write. It was my desire to tell stories. And I think you, you also have to have that. I mean, if you want to be published more than you want to write, you have a problem because that motivation probably won't result in what you want. I mean, it's, that, it's that, that thing where what you want can be achieved only by doing what you don't want. If that make, I'm not even sure I'm making sense now. I've been on tour for too long. But, <laughs> but, but what I mean is I do, I do meet writers. They don't want to actually write. They just want to have written yes. and they want to be published, but they actually don't, they're not actually that interested in, in, in writing or telling a story. Whereas, um, you know, I've always wanted to tell stories and I'm, I'm grateful that I am published because quite possibly I'd be in prison otherwise for making up stories in other ways, uh, you know, to sell people non-existent bridges or something. Because I like, I like making people believe in stuff. You know, I like, I like making people believe in the story I'm telling. So I'm sure, you know, I'd probably be a confidence trickster of some kind because that's what I like to do. But, you know, it's socially acceptable to do that in books and to tell stories. So, but that, that's, that's always been my primary motivation. And that's also why I've, I've not always written what my publishers want to do. I mean, because publishers always want you to do whatever worked last time because that is safe. And it is somewhat predictable. So if something works, a series works, it's always write more of that series. Uh, but I've actually always uh, written what I wanted to write next. And sometimes you take a short-term hit for that. Uh, and I've always been, and I have always been aware of that from being in the business and done it clear-eyed thinking, okay, well, this probably won't work as well as if I wrote another Old Kingdom book. Mm -hmm. But it's, what I, it's the story that's foremost in my head and ultimately... Um, I'm, you know, it, it's better for me, my mental health, everything. It, it would be better to write this book as long as you can, you know, afford the economic consequences. But I, I think that's another aspect of uh, for authors being informed is so important because you know, publishing, like I said, it is kind of a mystery cult and so on. The, the more you understand how things work, the less disappointed you'll be by, you know, the, the more negative aspects of it or when things don't work out or when they become very difficult, which is par for the course. You know, at least if you understand why it's so, you may be able to work out how to deal with it, either on a actual practical level of fixing up things or, or just coping with them. Um, and also knowing that, as I said before, this doesn't mean the end forever. The next book can change everything. If, if, you know, I mean, obviously there are many life complications as well, which affect writers and health and so on. And uh, I always think, you know, on that subject, you now writers in the UK and Australia uh, uh, greatly benefit from the fact we have public health systems. Mm -hmm. So many American writers, uh, you know, really the cost of health insurance means that they have to keep day jobs or, you know, they actually can't afford to have their health conditions looked at, so they, which then means they can't write and, you know, all, all those things. So I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, for our, our Medicare and your NHS. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah people don't think about how great it is for creative, creative artists, you know. I mean, I, I've seen GoFundMe's for authors, you know, they've oh, got some problem. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, something we don't really have to think about. Yeah, well, often it's something like I broke my leg mm. and the treatment will cost X and I can't afford it. 
and you know and if I can't get it fixed I I, I can't walk you know and then I can't go and promote my books so there's really immense consequences so Angel Mage is your new book is that one where you had to have a difficult conversation with the publisher is that one where you think I'm doing this for me or were they overjoyed by the idea of it they're kind of all used to me by now <laughs> um they well or, or they or they're able to fake it well um <laughs> I said this is what I'm going to. I mean, I actually, I typically don't really present it as a, as a uh, either or situation. I said this is what I'm writing next. You know, do you want it or not? Basically, which is is perhaps arrogant of me, I guess. And if they, if my current publishers said no, we don't want it, you know, that would be an, a nasty shock. But but I actually also know what to do in that in that circumstance. And again, I'm fortunate because. I, you know, I have a long track record and a, and a deep backlist, mm. which, you know, basically continues to work. Though it may not, of course, these things change all the time. So I suppose, you know, in terms of if I needed to move, I probably could. That's not always the case and it, and it, and it may not continue. I guess the relative leverage of an author versus their publisher is, is always changing. Mm. And, it, and it's magnified by your agent as well. So I'm also fortunate that I'm represented by, uh, you know, by, by strong and I guess powerful agencies actually because of their collective powers of all the people they represent. So that is also a help. I think possibly I'm allowed a little extra leeway out of sort of professional courtesy because I was an editor and agent, and even though that's fading away because it's back in the distance, but you know, um, some of the people I deal with, I used to sell books to when I was an agent as, as well. So, you know, maybe I'm, I'm cut a bit of extra slack in, in, in that regard. But yeah, it's it's an un, it's I'm always aware that it's an uncertain business, and if things don't work, then a great deal of thought has to be applied to what else do I do? You know, what do I do now? I did um, once, unfortunately, tell a, a friend of mine. In a, in a sort of discussion, a late night discussion over writing. And uh, I said to him, you're only as good as your last book and then they take you out the back and shoot you. And uh, unfortunately he took this rather more to heart than I, than, than I anticipated. Um, I, I, I didn't mean to be quite so vehement, but um, and, and there's a slight element of truth in that. Um, every time a, a book works very well, uh, particularly if it works very, very well, and it is a bestseller um, uh, as the topic of your, your your podcast, that kind of gives you some free tickets to the future mm -hmm. to have leeway to allow different things and to try different things and also to have failures, mm -hmm. but, you know, in commercial terms uh, because they might be an artistic success, but, of course, publishing really... It, well, they are, they're interested in the artistic success if it gains public critical recognition. Yes. Uh, and in fact, uh, you, either, you have to have one or the other basically to, to be able to continue publishing, I mean, preferably both. Mm. Um, if you can have both, then you're, then you're in a very privileged position. Uh, but you know, either one will give you some sort of tokens to be, to be extra tokens to be played mm. in, this, in this big game that we're in. You mentioned your editorial work then. When you were editing other people's works, what were the big lessons that you, you, you took away from that? I think probably the biggest lesson that I learned as an editor and one that I'm very much aware of when I work with very, you know, very good editors now is that the main thing is knowing what not to do, is knowing when not to intervene. And also, 
always being aware that the job of the editor is not to not to tell an author how to fix the problems in a book. It's actually to just to point them out and possibly to suggest ways around, but not to prescriptively say, this doesn't work and this is how you should fix it. Or even worse, actually attempt to do it, you know, in the manuscript, which does occasionally happen. And it's nearly always editors who don't really understand what they're doing with, with fiction, because um, I worked across the board on nonfiction as well. And nonfiction, you often do, you, you know, edit, 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 editors are often more intrusive in the actual text. Uh, not always, it very much depends on the author, but, but there's, there is often more uh, editorial direct input, you know, to the, to the text. Uh, but, the, but in fiction, it's very important to preserve the voice of the author and the rhythm and the euphony and so on. And, you know, I've been very fortunate, but I have seen examples where editors, you know, want to correct someone for, you know, for grammar, you know, grammatical purposes, which spoils their rhythm and the euphony and all the things that actually make the voice. And so then it becomes this banal text, which doesn't work. Um, and that's the problem. But it, that is relatively rare because most fiction editors understand what they're meant to be doing and, and they are very valuable. I mean, they, editors have pointed out very significant things to me, which I've then fixed, but um, or made suggestions which have proved to be, be very important. I think there is a perception as well from authors who've maybe not been through the editorial process that a development editor, for example, will may wave a magic wand and fix everything for them. But it, as you say, it's up to them to find the solutions, isn't it? Yeah, the whole idea of a development editor is an interesting thing, which uh, I guess stems from the self-publishing revolution, which we've been through, uh, which is a perfectly valid path, um, and and uh, you know can be can be a lucrative path. I think the sort of ratio of success to to uh, I won't say failure, but to, of success to nothing in particular mm. um, is about the same in traditional and self-publishing, regardless of the zealots for both. I, I think it's you know hundreds of thousands to one. But the idea of the development editor comes from from that because the self-published author is looking for the same sort of editorial services you will get from a traditional publisher in-house, but often those people offering those services. Uh, may not actually be as skilled or as experienced. And quite often, I think the authors are looking for a different sort of thing as well. Mm. And, they, and I think often it is they're looking for the magic wand to be, to be waved over. And possibly some of them get it. I mean, there may, uh, you know, there are editors who are very fine writers and uh, perhaps if they're um, paid enough, they, you know, they can improve uh, you know, a manuscript by directly working on it as opposed to saying these are the problems, this is how you fix it. But that's not normally what happens through the traditional path. And unfortunately, you know, from my limited experience here and it's all at second hand from people telling me they paid someone, you know, two thousand dollars or whatever to you know to work on their manuscript and they wanted me to look at it, you know, you know, a workshop situation or whatever, and I've seen that they've either made it worse or they've they've destroyed the voice of the original author in order to make it, you know, like a non fiction textbook. So but but it's like everything in self publishing, you need to be careful who you, who you you know the, who you work with. I mean, picking the your key partners there, you know, cover designer uh, the person who actually does the uh, ebook conversion and so on, 
all of those people actually need to be professionals. And because there's a demand for those services, there are a lot of people doing it and not all of them will be any good. And in fact, they may be worse than not any good. Uh, so I think it's like, again, many things in publishing research is, is vital and looking at, um, you know, look at someone who does that kind of self-publishing very well. Um, uh, I always suggest, I suggest this for you know, traditional publishing as, as well as look at the acknowledgements, yes. you know, see who they acknowledge. I mean, this is, this is for searching for agents too. Mm. You know, you need, obviously you need to look at current books, not ones from 20 years ago. Um, see who they acknowledge. I mean, look at your books, books that you think are like yours. You're in the same general area. See who, rep, you know, who represents them because they nearly always will, will thank them. I mean, Angel Mage, I'm not sure the acknowledgements are in the arc, but, um, because they sometimes come in later. But, you know, I thank my various agents and that's a good way to compile a shortlist of, of who to approach. And, and with self-publishing, I would look at who they're thanking or who they're crediting for, uh, you know, the ebook conversion, the cover art, uh, any editorial work and so on. Because, I mean, copy editing is important too, which is a separate issue from from the structural editing that uh, where, you, where you get that response of this works, this doesn't work, you know, maybe you need to look at this. You know, the copy editing is just the, the straightforward, um, you know, making sure all the, the, the prose works and, and so on. But that can be stuffed up too mm. uh, by being too intrusive. Yes. So, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's all it's all rather more complex than it seems sometimes. Yeah, yeah I think I, I'm, what I'm hearing from you again and again is you've got to stand your ground every now and then, haven't you? Yeah, well, yeah, and make your choices yeah. uh, and, and be aware of the consequences. Mm. So, and that's educating yourself to be aware of the consequences. And I think it's, it's important. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go and buy a house without, uh, from the shonkiest of non-real estate agents and not use you know, a solicitor for the conveyancing to say, oh, I'll just do it myself. Mm. You, you work with experts and, and you, want, you want your book to be good and that transformation of manuscript to book involves other people. So choosing who you work with is, is very important. Fantastic. And before you go, tell us about Angel Mage. <laughs> well, luckily for me, I was able to retrospectively construct a, an elevator pitch, which I don't believe in, I should hasten to add. Um, ele- elevator pitches, the idea that you in one sentence can convey the wonders of your story so much to... You know, a Hollywood producer or a publisher in between, you know, the, in between floors of a building whilst in an elevator, uh, kind of ludicrous, really, because it's the execution of it which is so much more important than the idea. Um, ideas are ten a penny, really. It's what you do with them. However, elevator pitches, I think, are quite useful when the book exists and to help people find it. And thanks to other people talking about the book and social media and so on, I've, I've constructed one, which is basically The Three Musketeers meets Joan of Arc with angelic magic and kick-ass women heroes. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Garth, um, I'm really looking forward to what you come up with next and best of luck with the rest of your tour and thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's a pleasure. I can tell you what's next if you like. Oh, yes, 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 please. Because I've actually, uh, astonishingly for me, I'm ahead of schedule. I've already written it. Wow. And my next book is The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. Wow. Which is a fantasy thriller set in 1983, a slightly alternative 1983 in London about a secret society of booksellers, one of whose bookshops is just down the road from here um, in alternate 1983, whose uh, essentially their job is to keep the ancient mythic entities of Britain under control and not, uh, not emerge into the contemporary world. 
that sounds right up my alley. I'm looking forward to it. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you. God, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it, Mark. Just write another book. That's, that's, that's what we've been saying. Get those words down. What a brilliant bit of advice. I think it's and And he's, another phrase he said there was, the next book can change everything. And I, I, I mentioned there that I do meet authors who are starting out who are just writing the same book again and again and again. And it can be difficult when you get to the end of your first book thinking, well, that's it. I've done it. Uh, just wait for the money to roll in or uh, you know and when you start getting rejections you think oh god have I got to go through this again and I was serious because they did um, Galantz did a wonderful um, speed dating writing advice thing where authors would move from table to table to table and there'd be a group of writers there many of whom are just starting out and you give advice but there was one guy there who'd written seven books and he's just been picked up by a publisher and I thought good for you mate that's fantastic because he didn't rest on that first draft he didn't he just said right i've done that all right got some interest got some rejections but i'm going to do another one i'm going to do it. and of course the more you write the more times you finish a book the more you learn about the process the more you learn about getting to the end which is so important and the better you will get as a writer so i could see some of the other authors uh, around the table you know kind of deer in the headlights thinking do i have to write seven books before i get picked up and that's not necessarily the case we've had people on here first book boom you know on our Amazon uh, Kindle Storytellers, you know, one of the nominees, one of the shortlisted authors, it was her first book. That's amazing. But they are the exception to the rule. So, you know, if you love doing this, if you love writing, you have to keep writing. Don't be that person who just writes that one book again and again and again. I think it's incredible, actually, when you think about this idea of persistence. That was one of the biggest things that I learned from Garth's interview. This idea of persistence to keep going. And and, and you've really just said it, Mark, it's about getting to the end because getting to the end adds another kind of badge of honor in some ways. It's about becoming better finishers. I think, I think we're all very good at starting. We're all awesome at actually starting to write a book. And I, for one, I put my hand up. I'm the heart. I, I find finishing, pushing something over the line, the distractions of other ideas, new, the new kind of, uh, you know, the new smell that you get and you like, you want to chase that one. I think the idea ultimately is, is that, we have to just get to the end of the book just to become a better finisher because each time we finish something, it becomes easier each time round. And and you, you have to finish in order to become an author. I mean, it's the bottom line, isn't it? Well, you're building a portfolio as well. You know, you're, um, you're building up a body of work. And even if it doesn't get published, you can say, well, if an agent speaks, you say, well, I'm on my sixth, fifth, sixth book or whatever. You know, if you were an artist, you wouldn't just do one painting and that would be it and keep trying to sell that painting again and again. You'd, you'd have to keep going. But if you're a musician, you don't just write that one song. You have to keep going. So I think it's the same. If it's short stories, keep banging out short stories. Just keep practicing your craft in different ways, as many different ways as you possibly can. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's solid advice. And another thing that I picked up from Garth, which is a really interesting take on bestsellers, we've always, you know, we've always talked about getting to number one in the charts is, is one of the ways that we kind of measure the bestseller. That's how we get the flag. And that's how you get in the charts and get printed in the paper and can put that thing across the top of your book. But he made a really good point in that there are two ways to get a best-selling book. The first way is to push really hard to get it into the charts on the first week uh, and then it might drop out on week two. But the second way is the idea of selling, say, you know, 
500 a week for years. Yeah. And, and that's a very interesting way of looking at it because, you know, it's, it's a bit like that. Um, you know, when you hear about these people that win the lottery and they get the option, you know, do you, do you take the, the 50 million now or do you take a 500,000 payout per, you know, per month for the next 25 years or something? Mm, yeah. And which would you prefer, Mark? Um, I think the long term thing is quite interesting because, like, like you said, Sabriel grew and grew and grew, never topped the bestsellers. Same for Dark Side of the Moon, never got to number one in the UK. Dark Side of the Moon just sold solidly for over 30 years, you know? Wow. Uh, so it's that kind of, it, I think if you're in it for the long haul, it's great to have a book that just sells and sells and sells and sells. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's nice to have a smash hit. But uh, yeah, you, like you said, you're only as um, only as good as your last book. And I think if you're if one of your books just keeps selling and keeps selling and keeps selling, then you're clearly not a flash in the pan. You're writing something that's here to stay and resonates with a lot of people. Now, how you do that? Who knows? You know, I mean, the Sabriel book kicked off an incredible series. Um, you know, fans all over the world. He's getting world tours. You know, it's. Who knows what that magical ingredient is? It's word of mouth is what it is, I guess. People are reading it, passing it around. I think as well, the other important thing for, especially when we think of indie authors, which is obviously the majority of people out there, the idea of getting what we call a long tail book, which is the, the mm. book that keeps selling week on week out. It might do amazing numbers, but it keeps bringing income. It actually brings an incredible amount of stability to an indie author's income because anyone that works for themselves or is a freelance or a consultant or, or an author of sorts we all know the biggest challenge is there's no you know, standard paycheck at the end of the month with exactly the same figure on it people that work in a company can sit down and budget you know their year they know what they're going to be getting each month they can work out how much they can afford to go on holiday and whether they can repair the car and how much they can put into the mortgage but for indie authors it's such a it's such an up and down thing that you don't really get to ever have that stability unless unless you have a book that just keeps on selling and that gives you at least a baseline income that you know keeps coming in and i think that's that's huge but we should really exp i think we should go deeper into that we should actually go deeper into that on this podcast um maybe what we could do is look at books that are selling consistently well over a long period of time and see if we can start to work out what it is about those books that makes them sell in that way because those books are bestsellers they may be selling f far in excess of some of the books that are number one today on the new york times or sunday times charts and i think that'd be a very interesting thing so if you have one of those books let us know uh send us send us in your sales figures and tell us how long it's been selling for and tell us what you've been doing differently and why you think it's been selling over a longer period of time because it's something we'd love to share with everyone out there that's a really interesting question actually because i Having worked in publishing, you do see authors come and go, careers come and go, and there aren't that many that hang around. You know, it is that, yeah. that longevity is a very, very difficult thing. You see it a lot in children's books, and I suspect that's hmm. because word of mouth is so important there. Because if you're, you're looking for something to read to a toddler, there is no shortage of advice or recommendations there. You know, so people go in, oh, I love the Gruffalo. I love this. I love, you know, yes. so you, you find those same books coming around again and again and again. But also there's this whole cycle of life thing that happens. Whereas if, if we, so for example, with children's books, if we read a book 
if we had a book read to us when we were younger, when we become parents, we buy it for our kids. And I think there's also, I think nonfiction is another interesting area because I think certain books that we love that, that you know, I've got a ton of books that, that are my favorite books. And those are the books I keep gifting to people. Like when somebody's in, you know, in a certain situation, I think, oh, they need this book. And I wonder whether a lot of the long tail is, is, and especially maybe with nonfiction, because I guess people pass around book fiction yeah. books. Oh, I've read this book. Um, you know, do you want to, do, do you want to, do you want to read it? Cause I was thinking if a book does really well in, in the secondhand market, obviously that's great for the people reading the book, but it's not good for the author because the author's <laughs> only going to get the payment from that book once, but books that you want to keep, but you then want to buy a copy for a friend. I wonder whether that has something to do with it as well. It's like the word of mouth and then some form of gifting as well that happens. I mean, it's not the whole part of it, but I wonder if it's, if, if it's actually a part of that. Oh, it definitely is. And, and you want to be part of core stock, right? So if you, um, if you're with a, uh, if you're published by a mainstream publisher and you discover you're in core stock, you, you are good because that's a title that, you know, say a Waterstones or WH Smiths or Dimmicks or whoever, whatever the chain is, it's part of their core. You know, it's something they have to have in stock. And there aren't many of them. They tend to be established classics, brand authors. But certainly if you're writing in a particular niche uh, and your book becomes the definitive book on that, you end up as core stock and it will be constantly reordered. And, you know, tick, 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 daily sales every day is that slow and steady wins the day kind of thing. But it's yes, um, yeah. it's it's interesting. Why do books like The Catcher in the Rye still resonate with people? You know, forty probably odd years. They have to, probably because they have to order it for every English class. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right? true. That's interesting because one of our guests, Michael R. Miller, um, his uh, one of his fantasy novels is on a curriculum. He was telling me it was on a creative writing course or something. And he says he gets a steady sort of trickle of income from that. And he's self-published as well. So, you know, if any of you guys out there know anyone on an examination board, <laughs> <laughs> tap them on the shoulder. You know, do you want a paragraph from my book? Uh, <laughs> still, yeah. yeah exactly. Still, yeah. But there's another example. I talked about gifting. There's a book called Love You Forever, which a lot of people actually haven't heard of, but it has actually sold 30 million copies. <laughs> one book 30 million copies and and it's a it's a book which is a very sweet children's book uh which everyone gifts people when they're about to have a baby and right. the joke is that um uh one of my friends who was having a baby said please please no love you forevers by robert munch it, I've, I've already got three copies and four people still turned up to the baby shower with the other four copies. <laughs> and honestly, every time I've gone into my local bookstore, I always see somebody walking past me with a copy on their way to, it's just like a phenomenon. And so, you know, that idea of, of, of something which is precious that you want to give them and a keepsake as well. I think, see, think, think about books. I guess there's two kinds of books, aren't there? There's the books that you read and then you, you, you pass on to the thrift store, you give to a friend or, um, you know, you, you, you give it on to somebody or there's the keepsakes that you read it and you think, I want to reread this. I want to go back to this. I find that with all my nonfiction, I have real trouble letting go of any of my nonfiction because I always wonder when I might want to dip back in and remind myself of that particular chapter, for example. Mm. And I think if we can create a book that's a keepsake, then then we're, we're doubling ourselves, tripling ourselves because all the word of mouth is copies bought for people rather than passing on a copy so who knows we'll have to dig deeper i bet you there's some great statistics out there we can find for everyone i learned a new word during this interview as well euphony 
uh, Garth used it oh. a couple of times. And during the interview, I just nodded like an idiot, going, oh, euphony, euphony. What the hell yeah, is yeah. that? Anyway, I looked it up. <laughs> E-U-P-H-O-N-Y. It, it essentially means pleasing to the ear. And what he's talking about there is the writing that may not be grammatically correct. Close your ears, pro writing aid. Um, but, but flows to the reader, you know? And well, actually, it's one of the things I like about pro writing aid. It accepts that this exists, you know? It accepts that you can write, as Ben Aronovich said, in the vernacular. You can write in a way that isn't technically correct, but is pleasing on the page, pleasing to the ear. So, yeah, euphony, word of the day, folks. Try and use it. Try and use it three times in conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, another interesting thing that uh, Garth mentioned was talking about finishing your book and then sending it out and getting on with the next one. And I think that's, it's, I mean, it's a brilliant advice, but it's for people that are just writing in the indie world. It's a very hard thing to do because it's the classic thing in the indie world is you finish your book and then you start marketing it and you market it and you market it and you don't have any time to write your next book and you keep marketing it and you mark and so there's this kind of balance between um how how as an indie author do you keep that writing momentum going whilst you obviously the kind of you are the publisher in it you know and you're doing the marketing side of things as well and and that i think can can actually break the momentum it's one of the biggest challenges i think you know indie authors have um, but I think, you know, is, is there a, is there something to be said that you should always send your book out to a traditional publisher, even if you're an indie author, just in case it gets picked up and you get a big deal and you, and then you do the marketing as well, or I mean, what are your views on that, Mark? Well, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, it worked for Liz Hurley because Liz in the full message that she sent us said that she, you know, she was, uh, did actually self-publish her book. Then, then, um, uh, hero books got in touch, but I, um, I think if you're an indie author, you at least have to, you've built marketing as part of your daily routine, I think. You know, uh, for me, I write in the morning and try and do marketing and admin in the afternoon because that's what works for me. The problem I had was I'd finished a draft of a book, sent it off to my agent, and you might not hear back from your agent for weeks. And, you know, you feel like, I want to get on with the next book, but what if they suggest a really major change what if they want to set it 20 years in the future or want to change the main character from a um, a woman to a man what if they you know so you sit there and you make notes while you're waiting for that feedback so and you can have that with beta readers if you're an indie author as well it's um you can find yourself sitting on your hands a bit the other i mean i'm lucky in that i get to write screenplay so if i've finished a book i tend to work on a screenplay or or a script idea uh, and I guess, you know, you could work on a short story, you could work on poetry, you could work, exercise a completely different muscle. And, you know, what they say, change is as good as a rest. So maybe that, that helps you, um, you know, spread, build your po- portfolio. Coming back to what we were saying at the beginning, you know, just keep piling it on. Brilliant stuff. Did you know, I, I've actually been writing a screenplay for the first time in my life and I'm finding it the most fascinating uh, exercise because it's so different and yet it teaches you so much about dialogue mm-hmm. uh, a different way of writing and i'm learning as i go but i'm really enjoying it it's it's a complete breath of fresh air love it i'll have to t- talk more about that on the podcast soon because that's really um, a major focus at the moment for me but it's it is interesting and, and i think you always become a better writer when you go and try 
different genres, if you like, and I think musically, but different styles of writing, different ways mm. of writing. And it keeps the momentum going or, or st- starts the momentum in my case, you know, gets things, get things moving. So it's fascinating. Um, one other thing that Garth mentioned is, and this really rung home, actually, I think a lot of people might, might be dwelling on this, this idea of, is it that you want to be published mm. more than you want to write? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of, I mean, we, especially a lot of our, us dream seekers, we, we were very much attracted to the, we're the moths to the light, aren't we? Where, where we think about the, the, the amazing dream of being published, but it really does make you question, you know, what, what is the bigger goal here? Is it to write the book or is it to get the book published? Yeah. It was interesting because he's saying that in the middle of Galantzfest, where a lot of people who attend Galantzfest are writers who are just starting out, you know, and they're looking at these panels where they've got some of their favourite authors. And, of course, case in point was our listener, Mike Shackle, you know, who was on a panel with Joe Abercrombie and Garth and other fantastic authors, you know, and a few years ago, you know, Mike, you know, was that was just a dream. That was a dream of his and it, it came true. So... There is that thing of, you know, you want to go on the panels, you want the recognition, you want to do book signings and festivals and uh, interviews and stuff like that because it's fun. Uh, well, I find it, I mean, some people find it excruciating, but I've got such a big ego. I love, I can't stop talking about myself. <laughs> I started a podcast. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's that old adage of, of I, you know, some people will say, oh, who did the quote, I hate writing, but I love having written. Um, so it's, uh, well, I remember, I remember John, was it John York even talked about the idea of, oh no, it was Vince Gilligan, actually Vince Gilligan in Breaking Bad said he, he loves it. His best bit is when he actually finishes, finishes his script. He said the writing can be hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it does. But I also think though, that all of those trappings, if you like, that come with success, uh, there's two ways of looking at that. You can we can joke about oh it's an ego thing, and but I actually the way I like to think of it is it's actually just recognition that your book is is being read, and mm. what more recognition do we want than knowing that there are people out there reading it? So yeah. um, I think in some ways they're, they're they're signposts to say you know what you're doing is making a difference in people's lives. It's changing how maybe their own inspiration. I mean, who did Mike Shackle read? or see at Galantz maybe to be inspired to want to have that dream. So we all need these avatars, if you like, these heroes that we're aiming to try and emulate and maybe sit next to on the stage one day. I think it's, mm. uh, it's incredible. But uh, I, I think, I think we, there can, I think during the writing process, during the writing process, if we get too tied into the dream of being published, then that might distract us from writing a brilliant story that will be published. I know, I know, but it's nice to dream though, isn't it? It is. I think it is important. It's it's nice nice to take five minutes just to go to one side and say, I'd I'd like to thank the Booker judging panel. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to thank the Academy. Um, But you can't let it consume you. Exactly. You can't let it consume you to the point where you don't write. You have to get, it was Dorothy Parker who said, I hate writing. I love having written. So, um, yeah, it's, you, you, you just have to dig in. Like I, I'm going through it at the moment. It's a slog. It's a bloody slog. But uh, usually one of the first things I do the next day is have a quick read of what I wrote yesterday before going into what I do today. And I'm like, oh, 
that's all right. I did, you know, 1,200 words or whatever, and they, they're not bad. That's good. I've impro- I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm making progress. So that's that's good. That's all good. So, you know, Brilliant you just stuff. have to take those little victories wherever you can find them. Absolutely. And never, and never I, think, I, think, I think the bigger sin, if I can call it that, the biggest sin is not dreaming. It's it's the people that are that are listening to the show right now and saying, "Oh, this is never going to happen. I'm no good. Um, you know, my writing sucks. I'm not natural. I'm not a naturally born writer." That's the biggest sin. I think people are in that space that you need to come on board now. You need to join in in this fun journey that we're all on and and give yourself permission to dream. And it's often about giving yourself permission. And if you can get to that place in life where you you allow that, well, I like to not childish, but childlike imagination that we all still have inside of us, that, that fantasy imagination. Uh, hey, we make stuff up all the time. Every single day we sit down and we make stuff up on the page. So make up some dreams, but make them, make them big because it doesn't cost anything less to think big than it is to think small. And I think... If we want to just as writers exercise our imagination and creativity, let's do it for our own careers. Let's start with that because ultimately that's what makes us a good writer. Absolutely. So let's dive in. We've got, thank you so much to Garth. That was a brilliant interview. I really, really appreciated it. Now a couple of other big biggies for me were always look at the acknowledgements. It's an absolute no brainer, you know, if you're looking and the other one, um, it was this idea of, I mean, I go back to it again, but it's not all about getting number one in the first week, folks. Mm. We're in the long haul right now, back to reality, and we're selling more books per week now, I think, than we ever have. Ev- at any time, that? yeah, no question. At any time. We've got the and we're two and a half years in. Yeah, and we've got the audio book ticking away as well. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's selling better now than it, it ever has. Absolutely. And that's on a day-by-day basis. It's not topping any charts but it's ticking along very nicely. It's very visible. We're getting we're getting great reviews every few weeks or so. You know, you get an extra review and it's a five star and it's like, yeah, excellent. Very happy. Do you think do you think this do you think the momentum's starting, Mark? Do you think this could be it? <laughs> <laughs> I say that whispering into the microphone. Uh, <laughs> I just like knows? I'm so excited. here's me, like it's this law of attraction to say do it, Mark. I'm so excited and looking forward to that millionth copy of Back to Reality when it sells in 2065. Yeah. <laughs> when we're probably long gone. Yeah. When this podcast has been uh, put into the archives and we sell our, they'll have, whoever's doing it after us, we'll have to get them to celebrate that millionth copy of Back to Reality. Yeah, our great, great grandkids. Yeah. yeah. Mark these words. <laughs> <laughs> So, Mark, what's been happening on social media this week? Well, I mean, we had the great news with Abigail and Liz, but we've had all sorts of wonderful stuff. So Jane Holly Meissner uh, dropped us a line on the BXP group over on Facebook. Just wanted to share my book cover, as I've seen others doing it. My cover artist is Aliana Wong, and she's brilliant. Her, and, she, and she gave her the full Photoshop files and everything. But she's publishing. Jane Holly is publishing via Inkshares, which is a lot like Unbound, uh, that my book, The End of Magic, it was published through so she's got publishing through crowdfunding and you know she's uh, but she's already got the cover art and it looks absolutely gorgeous it's called Faye Child by Jane Holly Meissner and it's just wonderful another 
uh, one of our BXP team, Mark Hood. He said, uh, right, this is scary. I've put my first work up for pre-order. It's a prequel novella, which I originally meant to use as a reader magnet, but it got a bit out of hand. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you might recognize it from a certain podcast, One Page Punch-Ups. And Mark did indeed submit the first page of his book, Jacob's War, uh, to the One Page Punch-Ups. And he's going KDP exclusive now. So, uh, yeah, check it out. We're going to put a link in the show notes for that. It's got a fantastic fiery image showing Stonehenge on the cover. So that's amazing. Uh, we, Isn't that awesome, Mark, though? For the one page, from one page punch up yeah. to published book. Yeah. I love that. Well yeah. done, Mark. That's brilliant. We love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, Jan Carr. Uh, public declaration from Jan. I'm going to use NaNoWriMo to splurge the first draft of the sequel to my Kidlet story I'm banging on about at the moment. So, yes, so listeners, if you're listening to this on the week it comes out, you will be in that first week of NaNoWriMo. So good luck. Let us know how it's going, how we can spur you on. Uh, another. We should also say for anyone that is doing NaNoWriMo, if you're into the first week and you're already way, way behind, fear not because we may have a solution for you. 2020, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> we have a, Sorry, Mark, do carry sorry, on. No, no. Uh, we have another public declaration from Julian Barr, who has a story which is alive in my mind right now. I also need to finish the Ashes of Olympus trilogy by March, and I've, I've read the first two in it freaking amazing uh, he says I have another series I want to finish by the end of next year but the present story wants to be written I don't know if this is a good idea it's never gone well in the past but I'm going to do NaNoWriMo so by the end of next month I'm going to be 50k into the Changeling's Mask so good luck with that Julian good luck with that Jan and finally Angela, Angela Nurse, uh, listened to the podcast today and loved RJ Barker's enthusiasm. That was a couple of weeks ago, folks. RJ, we love RJ. Fantastic, fantastic interview with him. Really enjoyed speaking to him. Angela says, the Mark said that 2020 was going to be an exciting year. I hope so. I'm nearly finished my first draft of my third book, and it feels like it could be the start of something good. It's a bag of spanners just now. I've never had a first draft that felt quite this rough, but maybe that's a good sign. It is, Angela. It really is. I I've had a really challenging couple of years, been lots of work. I feel I can see a pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel. So good luck with that, Angela. These, and that's these, so, are, these are the published so authors of tomorrow, aren't they? Yeah, these wow, are, yeah. they are, they are. And it, they're so heartwarming to hear from Angela because Angela's kind of kept us up with her story in it. She's done such incredible progress on on everything. Angela is one of those people, folks, that, you know, if you need an example of someone that goes through thick and thin and still comes out with a finished draft. And I love, I love <laughs> bag of spanners. Bag of spanners. That's, that's, <laughs> bag of spanners. First draft, bag of spanners. I think that's probably got to be another BXP t-shirt, I think. I we really it. need to sort think, the merchandise out, don't we? We do. <laughs> do you know what? I think we should. If you, okay, so if you've got a favourite, here we go. If you've got a favourite quote from the bestseller experiment that you'd like to see on a t-shirt, let us know and maybe we could do something like that I, I quite like the idea of that yeah yeah we should do that yeah <laughs> well done angela well done angela like we talked about persistence earlier today with with garth and about how important it is just to keep going and finish that book and and again angela's another example of, of making that happen and it's inspiring it's you you inspire everyone else through your own journey so well done angela brilliant stuff now talking about angels angela angels eh? Hey, hey. Um, oh, nice, nice. I got a proof copy, an ARC copy of Angel Mage, which Lee Bardugo says sets the standard for fantasy, and he's only gone and signed it. Um, shall we Shall we do a little... We haven't done a giveaway in a while, have we, Mr. We Dish? haven't done a giveaway in ages. Let's do a giveaway. Yeah, let's, do it. let's give away a signed copy of uh, the ARC of Angel Mage by Garth Nix. So... Um, 
standard standard terms and conditions uh come and sign up to That's our right. newsletter you'll go into a draw uh and uh we'll um we'll put a link in the show notes to the giveaway page uh but also if you go to our website you'll see a tab that says win so click on that and you'll see the giveaway there all the terms and conditions and the closing date which we haven't decided yet <clears throat> That's right, but that'll be on the that'll be on the competition form. But also, just to remind everyone, if you're part of the BXP team, you automatically are entered. So you don't even have to come and pop your email address in. So fantastic! That's a brilliant gift, and just in time, probably for Christmas as well. I think Mark, that one will be. So what a great present that could be! And uh, so thank you, Mister Nix, for that. Thank you for everyone who has come to listen to the show today. I really hope in these, unless you're in Australia, of course, in these really dreary and dark nights closing in that you're getting lots of writing done and you're getting inspired again because you know what life is about getting inspired we we all have ups and downs we all have good weeks bad weeks good days bad days but it's all about keeping inspiration going because inspiration fires momentum and if you want momentum that's what gets you to the end of the finish line in all of this because we're all in it together this is this is the london marathon it's like my gosh, what, 26,000 people or however many people do the marathon all lined up on that finish line and everyone's jostling for positions. But I do think that um, when that gun goes off, it's good to have people around, isn't it, Mark, really? It is. I'm, I mean, if I, ever did a mar- if I ever did a marathon, and I probably won't, I'll be the one shuffling along at the back. And we, if there's a theme to this week's episode, it's slow and steady wins the day. Happened with Sabriel. You know, sold a million over a million copies, but never got to number one. But is you know, it's one of it's a core stock book. It's in every bookshop. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs to have it because it's you know, essential fantasy. A slow and steady wins the day. That'll be me shuffling along, probably dressed up as a dinosaur or something, (laughs) (laughs) crossing the finishing line in a puddle of sweat. But you know, (laughs) and it is those people though when you watch the marathon. It is those people that are as inspiring as the person that runs, you know, like the, the athlete recently went under two hours for the first time. Oh, yeah. It's the people that, right, but it's the people. So there are, so we, we bring those people onto the show. I mean, we have the, the, the world record breakers, but we also have the people that, you know, like you say, keep with the race and are the ones that are getting to the 25th mile, hitting that wall and crawling. And then maybe some people come alongside them and picking them up and helping them across the line because those people in the footage, in the news footage, are as inspiring as the people that like sprint all the way to the finish line. Mm-hmm. So, and then really, you know, when we look at it, you know, there's there's only there's only you know a small amount of space for those people at the very top, but there's a lot of space for everyone else to finish. So, finish your book, folks. Make that your goal. Yeah, uh, this is a complete left field thing, but you just reminded me, my friend Sue Strom who used to be a sales rep at Orion and was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She ran the London Marathon a couple of years ago. You probably saw her on the news and she's been on TV and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, yeah, just um, she inspires me. Sue inspires me. Uh, If you want want to help Alzheimer's Research UK, chuck them some money. There you go. That's my definitely. (laughs) We'll put a link. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I think that's an amazing cause. So, folks, thanks so much for joining us again this week. Thank you to Garth for the amazing interview. Thank you to everyone who's written in, Abigail and Liz, for your book deals. Amazing. And for everyone else who's making it happen, please, please come and support this podcast. You can do so by going to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you'd like to get in contact, Mr. Stay... Yeah, drop us a line. Come over to bestsellerexperiment.com. Don't send us messages on Facebook. Uh, They just get lost. It's just bizarre. If you're doing a personal message to 
to me i can find it if you do it to the website you get one notification and then you have to go through like 17 levels facebook what a nightmare so drop us a line <laughs> at bestsellerexperiment.com uh, forward slash can't contact uh twitter dms on twitter are fine i can find them uh, inst- <laughs> I can, they're easy instagram messages forget it they're even worse than facebook <laughs> owned by the same company funnily enough uh, but pretty pictures on instagram at bestseller xp but yeah drop us a line send us send us a pigeon anything but facebook messages um, <laughs> um, but yeah get in touch don't let this put you off <laughs> Absolutely. And we look forward to hearing all your incredible stories. Keep them coming, folks. Keep your public declarations coming. What might be your public declaration for 2020? I'm just going to stick that out there now because now's the time to be thinking about it. Not New Year's Eve when you've had half a bottle of tequila. Now is the time, 2020. What do you want to do next year? Have a think about it. We'll be talking a bit more about that over the next couple of weeks, I reckon, Mark. Mm. Um, Everyone, have a fantastic week. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye! Has everyone gone, Mark? Have we stopped stopped recording? Have you stopped recording? Check under the table. Yeah, they're all gone. Okay. So um, I didn't want to mention this during the show, but I just wanted to show you something. Right, hang on a sec. I'm just going to share my screen. Uh, If I press this button here and go here, look at this. Oh! (laughs) Say no more. Look at that. What do you think? Oh, fancy schmancy. Yeah.